Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Alexa, Brianna, Nathan, and Eustace. Since 1996, Ukraine has been in command of the Vernyansky Research Base, a home away from home for those Ukrainians who have worked there as part of the country's state-targeted scientific and technical program for Antarctic research for 2021 to 2023. In this week's episode, we explore the history of the base and the current contribution that Ukraine's making to scientific research in Antarctica. This and more on Zakhrdonyi Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. This week, we thought we would talk about the Ukrainian Antarctic Station, the Vernadsky Research Base, located near the Kiev Peninsula, which is close to the southern tip of South America. The base is named after Ukrainian-Russian meteorologist Vladimir Vernadsky, who was the first president of the National Academy of Science of Ukraine. The current base was originally owned by the British, and it was then passed on to Ukraine in 1996. The original base that was here was the Woody House on Winter Island, and that was established in 1947. And the primary purpose of this station was to research geophysics, meteorology, and ionospherics. In 1954, the base was moved to the present site now, and it was renamed as the Coronation House for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. It was then renamed again in 1977 after the scientist Michael Faraday. So while the Soviet presence.、Um Pre-Ukrainian independence、uh, in Antarctica was not obviously directly linked to Ukraine as an independent nation. It's important to note that a lot of the infrastructure and hardware used、uh, in the Antarctic expeditions during the Soviet times were actually、uh, products of Ukrainian、uh, manufacturing plants and Ukrainian inventors. So we've talked previously about、uh, Antonov Airlines and and some of the amazing. Aircraft that were built over several decades, and then probably culminating in things like the Maria, the world's biggest plane. We also talked previously around、um, some Harkiv factories that were responsible for a lot of tank production, but also diversified into other areas、um, post independence. And the Harkiv、uh, transport and engineering plant and Mashalov factory, which was originally a state-owned factory, produced a series of very unique vehicles for use. In extreme Antarctic conditions,、uh, and these were called、uh, the Harkivchanka or the Harkivchanka, if you want to say it in a more modern way.、Um, and the Harkivchankas have actually been in continuous use. They were produced in、uh, 1957-58, and versions of them, in slightly improved versions, but essentially the same versions,、um, are still of, still on the Antarctic continent and still being used in some capacity. Most of them have been retired,、um, but. What they were were very unique vehicles. They were vehicles that basically had not just to think of it as a vehicle is probably a bit misleading. It's probably best to think of them as more like a mobile cabin or a cabin on wheels. They have、uh, large tractor tracks,、uh, like you would see on a tank, and then they also have inside 
not only a area to to actually obviously control the vehicle from the front, they also have uh, a small galley with oven, they have a toilet on board, and they have enough space for eight beds for people to be able to sleep. And these um, vehicles were really, really important in terms of transporting vital supplies to those stations. Um, and really, they're, they're quite famous in terms of Antarctic transport, simply from the fact that these Harukachiukas uh, uh, really were kind of the best um, vehicles that were ever built for this sort of job. Um, and uh, in the time, we're kind of leading the way in terms of being able to, you know, provide true logistical support in the most harsh conditions on the planet. Uh, and as part of that as well, while we can say that they were a great um, a great invention, perhaps from Harukil, let's not um, sugarcoat it too much. I mean, there was some issues, uh, and even in the second generation, um Harukachankas that were built in 1974 and 75, there was still um, some issues. I mean, the, the best way to kind of describe it is that um, because of the way they were built, they um, they were quite tight and, you know, people were living quite close together and they were known to break down just due to the conditions. But one of the other things that made it difficult was to make it practical to repair any problems with the engine. The engine wasn't actually on the outside of the vehicle like you would normally see. The engine was actually on the inside so that it could be repaired from inside the warm cabin. But of course, the problem with that meant was that when you tried to sleep on these wonderful, luxurious bunk beds, um, you had the noise of the engine really stopping you from ever sleeping and pretty much everything was covered in soot and you were breathing in exhaust fumes. So while they weren't perhaps the most um, luxurious thing as they might sound like by describing them, they were a very key um, aspect of... Oh, sorry, they were a very key technology for the exploration of Antarctica at the time. What a healthy environment to live in. Yeah. Did any of you guys um, watch Thunderbirds when you were younger? Because to me, it looks like one of the like machines. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if anyone, yeah, that's a very good description. If you know what Thunderbird 2 is, this thing looks like it would come out of Thunderbird 2. Um, <laughs> and just to give you a bit of an impression of size, I think it's worth just mentioning. So it's basically... It's a length of 8.5 meters. So it's quite a long vehicle. The width is 3.5, which is longer than, uh, wider than some cars are long. Um, it was quite high. Um, it had seven wheels on each side. Um, and the, the actual tracks themselves were one meter wide each. So they were quite wide uh, tracks as well. Um, it, at this stage, the, the fastest it could actually go on the snow or ice was 56 kilometers an hour, which actually considering how big the vehicle was quite impressive. And it was about 60 tons in terms of towing capacity. And building off Eustens' point, as with everything in the Cold War, Antarctica was no exception. And uh, there was a lot of competition between countries to have Arctic Antarctic bases and to have them permanently manned. And the US and Russia, obviously being the two great superpowers of the era, had the most numerous and typically largest bases on the continent, though they weren't the only ones. And when the Soviet Union fell apart, there was great expectation within Ukrainian academic circles that Ukraine being the second largest republic of the Soviet Union and one of the countries that contributed quite heavily to Antarctic exploration would, as a result, be entitled to at least one former Soviet base. However, Russia being Russia, declared itself the successor to all of the USSR's Antarctic stations and refused to transfer any of them to Ukrainian jurisdiction. And as a result, Ukrainian scientists began to lobby the newly formed 
Ukrainian state to maintain an Arctic presence and to find a way for Ukraine to continue to be an an Antarctic nation and to continue to develop research in that area. And I think, Brianna, you have a little bit more research on how Ukraine became an Antarctic nation. Yeah, so it was actually really interesting. So in 1994, with the help of the UK, Ukraine became a member of the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, even though it didn't actually have its own station in Antarctica yet. And um, so it like it collaborated really closely with the UK, so much so that when the British were selling the Faraday base, they wanted to find someone who had sufficient scientific potential to be able to continue the research that they'd started. So they'd sent delegations from the British Antarctic Survey to Ukraine to get acquainted with like the scientists from the Ukrainian National Scientific Authority uh, in Kiev and Kharkiv. So that when Ukraine actually did come into Antarctica to take over the base, the transfer happened seamlessly, um, which meant that the hydrometeorological research, say that five times fast, wasn't interrupted <laughs> for even one day. So they were able to continue the research on without any interruptions and continue the work that the UK started. So how did this whole transfer process work? So Ukraina got the station from the British basically for free, but they symbolically paid the British one British pound to be able to purchase the station in Antarctica. And funnily enough, uh, that that pound that they bought it with is actually still inside the station. So back when the station was still run by the British, they, um, they had a shipment of wood come in and one of the people, one of the designers or builders there was like, uh, forget about what this wood was for, let's build a bar. And um, <laughs> they decided to design it in the style of a traditional English pub, probably to like, you know, uh, provide a reminder of home for the British scientists that were, you know, away from home for ages. Um, so when Ukraina took over, they made over, they like redesigned the, the bar and added Cyrillic flags, other trinkets, um, and actually placed that British pound that they paid for the station as one of the trinkets in the bar. So now when tourists come to the station and buy, you know, the vodka that's distilled on site, send a postcard from there, they can come in and, and see the history, the pound that actually bought this station. It's just yeah. sitting there. And I think it's, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are thinking, what, one pound? That seems a bit odd. Um, but it actually is more common, um, than you would think. In a lot of legal circles, you hear about a thing called consideration. Um, and that, that really, even if something is kind of gifted, it often requires some form of payment, which usually is one unit of whatever the currency would be. So the one pound. But also the other thing is, as much as it might seem like a great steal to get a base, um, when it comes to Antarctic logistics, the, the cost of maintaining a base or keeping people at a base far exceeds, I guess, the, the practical realities of like owning a base or land. You know, land. Obviously, that was great. It was a great gift, but um, with it comes a lot of responsibility and a lot of costs to upkeep. So, Nathan, what does Ukraine research in Antarctica now? Okay, well, first, let's start off with who's actually at the base. So, currently, the team that resides there is a team of 12 people. They have two geophysicists, two meteorologists, three biologists, a doctor, a cook, a diesel electrician, a system mechanic, 
and a communications administrator. Now that's the team for the 2021 to 2022 year um, who have been there. Some of the people that have been there, this might be, let's say their first um, trip there. Some of them have been there, uh, what they call for three winters. Uh, yeah, so then it's not just all, um, they don't just change the entire uh, team uh, around like with uh, new people you have different people some are new and some are on their um, like veterans you could say of their uh, Antarctic expeditions so when we're looking at what Ukraina's plan is this is a statement that comes from um, uh, Ukraina's the website from the Ukrainsky government on um, their Antarctic research and it says on November 3rd 2010 the cabinet of ministers of Ukraine adopted resolution number 1002 on approval of the state-targeted scientific and technical program for Antarctic research for 2011 to 2023. The government decree opens a new space for our scientists, for scientific research, and further integration into the international group of leaders in the development of the ice continent, as well as contributes to Ukraine's fulfillment of international obligations under the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. Yes, yeah, so this is um, a very kind of specific thing I want to look at next, which is the uh, the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, which it relates to agreements that were uh, made to regulate international relations with respect to Antarctica. Um, obviously, it was originally um, set up in 1959 and it was only uh, had 12 countries that originally ratified it, which were Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Chile, France, Japan, New Zealand, Norway, South Africa, the United Kingdom, the United States, and as Alexa mentioned, the USSR, which is where Ukraine came in back in 1959. Um, I have some other stuff, but Sten, do you want to jump in with some of the things you know about the treaty? Yeah, so Nathan, um, Ukraine, as the time progressed, Ukraine's obviously now been recognised as an independent country within the treaty system for the Antarctic. Um, and where it's, I guess, slightly different to some of the other countries is that it doesn't have a specific claim. So the classification that they're part of at the moment is parties without a consulting status and also without a claim. So um, as part of that, they, they're kind of present there. They have the right to conduct research, but their ability to kind of, you know, I guess negotiate or have a voice in Antarctic affairs is, is a little bit more limited. Um, and that includes countries like Canada as well, a part of that same sort of bubble of uh, countries without the consulting status. So uh, when it was obviously first established, those main parties all had established exploration and claims, um, and so they all continue to exercise those claims. But there is still, even with this system, although it's been very successful at protecting Antarctica from commercial development and potentially even warfare, I guess, or territorial disputes negotiated by war, it hasn't really done a great job of really identifying, you know, which claims are fully recognised. And in fact, um, Australia, which has a, a huge claim in comparison to others, um, is 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 respected by the treaty system. But at the same time, um, even parties to the, the treaty system don't necessarily <laughs> recognise every single claim. Um, and and even when they do recognise it, they recognise it conditionally, almost, you know to the point of saying, well, yeah, we may not recognize this in the future. Um, so, yeah, a good example of like an unofficial claim or a claim that's not really recognized is Brazil. Um, and, yeah, uh, there's also historical claims from France, sorry, historical claims from Germany and Japan. Um, but then there's more, I guess, rock, I guess rock-solid uh, claims from places like Norway, as I mentioned earlier, Australia um, and uh, France. 
And this sort of yeah. brings us to the area of Antarctica where Ukraine is, which has multiple cross claims of the Chileans, the Argentinians, and the British. And all three of these areas overlap where Ukraine's base is located. So it's a, it's like an interesting little section of geopolitics. Mm, yeah. And I guess kind of Antarctica has been that, um, to me, it kind of feels like a similar situation to like the moon where it's there's no official native population um, there living there. So, you know, th- these treaties are important to make sure that countries just don't rush to it and, um, you know, start to seize up whatever uh, lands that they want. Um, yeah, it's very much that, um, Nathan. And I think the other thing that's just going back to it, we're all lovers of history here and we could go down different uh, avenues with this. But the other reason why I think this was so important at the time when it was first established was that there were skirmishes. Um, there was a massive expansion of Nazi Germany in terms of research and, and you know, military presence in Antarctica during the Second World War. That was obviously countered by um, the US Navy and, and other um, allied powers. So the idea that that was kind of that the research era kind of broke into a, you know, an area where potentially it could be more of a, a military presence definitely, you know, clouded, you know, I guess definitely concerned all the powers. And obviously now when we look towards space and the moon, as we look towards reaching the moon again, these things are actually a real concern as well. And so hopefully the Antarctic, um, treaty system that's been in place for, I guess, almost, uh, about seven, seven decades now, um, is something, well, a little bit less than that, but, um, something is something that maybe is a good model for how we deal with, uh, making sure that space is something that's more unified and less territorial based on country and can be, you know, I guess, uh, shared equally by all. Yeah, definitely. So last thing on the treaty, the official website for it is the Secretariat of the Antarctic Treaty, and it lists the three important provisions of the treaty. Article 1 is that Antarctica shall be used for peaceful purposes only. Article 2, freedom of scientific investigation in Antarctica and cooperation towards that end shall continue. And Article 3, scientific observations and results from Antarctica shall be exchanged and made freely available. So I think it's really important that um, even though Ukraine might not have the same status as some of the other countries, I still think it's important that they are present there and that they are, you know, furthering their own uh, research and their own development um, so that they can contribute to the wider scientific community with what they have uh, discovered there. So when looking at how Ukraine planned to meet these goals that they set out, they put it into two processes. The first one, they said that there was an implementation of tasks and projects of scientific research in Antarctica in the main modern research areas, which included earth science, life science, physical sciences, and this is all supported by the International Scientific Committee for Antarctica. So those are the areas that they wanted to conduct their research in. And the second part was they had an execution of strategic tasks in the following areas, which was conducting Antarctic expeditions, uh, cooperating with the international organizations, and informing and publishing activities on Ukraine's presence in Antarctica. And I thought that was the other interesting part there, that they're um, informing and publishing their activities. So it shows that they aren't just there as like a supporting role to, you know, support researchers from other countries. They are doing their own research and they are publishing their own activities of what they're doing in Antarctica. So it shows that Ukraine can actually contribute um, from a scientific standpoint to the research that is happening in Antarctica. Um, now, here comes the 
fun in-depth part. So this is the research that's currently taking place. So this can be broken up into seven main categories and they kind of link to kind of the members of the team that we saw before. So the first one is geological and geophysical. And the aim of this research is to study the geological structure of West Antarctica, its main structural elements, and their connection with the ecology uh, and mineral resource potential of the region. Now, to me, this uh, reminded me of a story I remember from um, when I was in university. Greenland was looking at uh, what to do with its you know, mineral resources. And um, I found a, a news article, which is actually from 2021. So this issue is still going on for Greenland, where it says the battle over Greenland's untapped natural resources. A fight over Greenland's rich oil, gas and mineral deposits is raging as global warming melts ice and exposes rich reserves. Now Greenlanders are struggling to balance economic growth with environmental protection. So the natural resources that do exist under um, Antarctica, I think it's important that we understand what is under there um, because I'm positive that in the future there are going to be countries that are going to want to use those natural resources and, you know, whether you agree with that or not, I think it's still important that people actually know what, what resources are available in uh, Antarctica. Going on from there, they have hydrometeorological studies, and the aim of this is a detailed assessment of the state of the climate system, the atmosphere, the cryosphere, and the hydrosphere in Antarctica, and its impact on global climate and its development of climate change scenarios. So when looking at Antarctica, I think this is probably the most uh, logical form of research, uh, research in the region, given the current climate scenario. I'm sure some people have heard that there's a giant crack that is actually forming over one of the ice sheets in Antarctica. I can't remember the exact size of the iceberg that would form from it, but I'm pretty sure they mentioned it was it was either the size of a city or the size of a state. I can't remember exactly, but it was a massive iceberg that would form. So that's another form of research they're doing there. Oceanographic uh, research is the next one. And the aim of that is to obtain data on the state of the Antarctic hydrosphere, establish trends in climatic variability of the oceanographic fields of the Southern Ocean, and uh, predictors of the forecast zones of high biological productivity and the role of Antarctica in global environmental uh, evolution. So that's from their website. And basically they're looking at predicting the possible outcomes of like high population areas of the ocean and the effects of uh, Antarctica on the uh, environment and evolution throughout the world. So a similar example that I found, this is from a British research team, and they were doing a, um, a study on uh, modeling movement of Antarctic krill, the importance of retention, dispersal, and behavior for krill distribution. They were talking about how krill is an important source of food, and it's also highly desirable by krill fisheries. So there were, this particular research from this uh, UK research uh, station was looking at ways that they can regulate um, krill, uh, sorry, krill uh, farming and krill fishing to ensure that high population areas of the ocean around Antarctica um, still have enough food to survive. And so that's kind of what they're looking at. These populations that grow in the oceans around Antarctica, how do they affect other areas and other ecosystems around the world? So I have three left. The next one is geocosmic. And the purpose of this one is to study the interaction of atmospheric and space weather systems. And it's also the study of natural and man-made movements in the geocosmos to predict the state of space weather. That one I thought was pretty fascinating that they were um, going to Antarctica to predict uh, weather patterns in space. 
Um, the next one's the largest one, which is biological. Unfortunately, it was actually quite um, vague on the government's website. It just said it was a wide range of scientific start, uh, tasks, which included zoology, botany, microbiology, virology, biochemistry, cell biology, and genetic engineering, molecular biology, and genetics with reference uh, to various biolayers in uh, Antarctica. So that was a pretty uh, wide one. And um, it's a shame I didn't go into more detail. Um, the second one, second last one is medical and physiological. Unfortunately, that one had absolutely no information on the website. So I'm not exactly sure what they're doing there with that one. But the last one is the one I thought was pretty important as well, is the development and implementation of new technologies. And the purpose of this is to develop and implement new technologies to ensure the life of the station, environmental protection, safety, energy conservation, automation of research, modernization of the infrastructure of the Ukrainian Arctic Station. So I thought that was also very important because if they're, if they're able to develop certain technologies that can improve the research uh, capabilities of not just their station, but other stations, then that means that uh, Ukraine is also able to then, uh, like I said before, contribute to that scientific research and to really putting um, the country kind of like on the map when it comes to scientific research, particularly in Antarctica. So that's the research that they are doing there currently. And the last bit of news that I have from the base actually happened uh, just a couple of days ago. And it was a article that was on the government's website. It says, on the eve of the Independence Day, Ukraine acquired the legendary British icebreaker, James Clark Ross. So this is a uh, icebreaker, for those who don't know, is a particular type, type of ship that is able to navigate through frozen parts of the ocean. And it says in the article, for Ukraine, the acquisition of James Clark Ross opens up a whole new world of opportunities. For the last 20 years, Ukraine has not had its own icebreaker for Antarctic research, which has significantly limited our work. Also, with this vessel, Ukraine has ambitions to conduct large-scale explorations of the Southern Ocean, and if possible, eventually begin research in the Arctic. I mean, we were talking about the research we're doing, they're doing there currently, whereas now they have the ability to greatly improve upon that research and improve their capabilities. So, so far, I mean, it's good to have a couple of good stories coming out of Ukraine every now and again, and this is definitely one of them to show that they're not just um, focusing on their uh, domestic issues at home, but they are also continuing to, you know, serve the global, uh, wider global community as well. So I just have a question for you guys. What do you think the importance of Ukraine having that research base is in your opinion? I think for me, um, obviously, any type of science activity and continuing legacy of having an established group of research, researchers, you know, previous in previous Soviet times and, and have a distinct Ukrainian voice is a great thing to have. Also, I think, um, as I've kind of mentioned, the the Although Antarctica is very far away from Ukraine, there are only a limited set of countries that have bases that do research. So I think it's important for Ukraine in a global community sense, scientifically and diplomatically, to be a present uh, party to one of these areas of the world that is kind of the last undivided territory, I guess, or determined territory. Um, so I think those things are quite important, and I think it provides uh, a place for kind of, I guess, you know, pioneering research and it's interesting as well i think it's important just researching for this story that um ukraine's a member to the antarctic treaty system 
but it's not a member of the Arctic Council at all. So it's obviously the Arctic Council is more about the countries that really border the Arctic Sea and, and that side of things. But, I mean, considering how much closer it is to that side of the world, um, it is quite fascinating that it's not even a, um, I guess, a observer party like countries like China are, for example, which mm. have, are even further away from the Arctic. So I think it's a good uh, it's good for Ukraine to maintain its presence because I think it provides something for national pride but also um, a platform for further work in the global community. Yeah, I'd say you're you're both absolutely right. And I think it's good, like you say, Nathan, it's like a nice positive story coming out from Ukraine that they're contributing to global research. And I think it's quite an unsung story from Ukraine that, you know, they have an, an Antarctic base and that it's manned every year and that there's constant research going on. And now that they're able to expand their capabilities by purchasing an icebreaker, which now allows them to independently travel to Antarctica and they're not relying on other nations and I think it kind of builds on that confidence that Ukraine is gaining with you know being an independent nation for 30 years definitely speaking of um getting Ukrainians or the you know the Ukrainian Ukrainian science teams to Antarctica did you guys know that um uh, before obviously Ukraine had their own icebreaker the journey would take them about a week to get from Kyiv to the station a week. Uh, I thought so, longer. Well, no. So they would, I don't know, like fly or find out some way to get to Chile or Argentina and then take a boat to the base because obviously that's like the closest point between South America and Antarctica. But um, mm -hmm. last year when COVID hit, they weren't actually able to leave from Chile or from South America because of all the countries being in because of all the countries being in lockdown. So, you know, what should have them, what should have taken them about a week, they then had to detour from Kyiv to Qatar to Brazil to Chile, isolate there for two weeks, and then get on board the ship to take them to Antarctica, which ended up taking them more than four weeks to make that trip last year, which I thought was insane. Would have been quite a, uh, you know, a shock going from Ukraine to Qatar and then going to Antarctica. I mean, like, let me go to the scorching heat before I go to what, minus 20. Hot, cold just, therapy, like using a sauna. <laughs> uh, just one thing, when you mentioned COVID, Brianna, I, wanted, I was curious as to if COVID has um, gotten to Antarctica, and I just found an article from February this year. COVID has reached Antarctica. So that happened in December last year. So now it's a, uh, it says Antarctica lost its status as the last continent free of COVID-19 when 36 people at the Chilean research station tested positive. So it's everywhere now. That's a downer of an ending. <laughs> I think it's also quite cool that Ukraine, you know, has that bar that tourists can visit and they have like a post office down there. Like, I think that'd be pretty cool. Like, I know no one uses snail mail these days, but even still receiving a letter or a postcard from Antarctica would be a pretty cool thing to have. Is that the only bar well, in Antarctica? No, I think there's a few more. I think there's like three or four. Yeah, they, they but need, um, but it's the only place, place that makes Hrivka. Yeah. <laughs> it is <laughs> the, the southernmost bar in the world. Yay! Yeah. I, I do know that there was also, um, back in the Soviet times, the, they built a wooden chapel um, at one of the Soviet bases. I know that was the only place of worship. It was an Orthodox uh, church. That was the only place of worship on the continent. But I think that might have changed now as well can tell you that um the base or the station actually has a four and a half star out of five star rating on TripAdvisor 
or the tourists that come in their ships really praise the vodka that they make there. Apparently the other scientists are really friendly though, really nice when they're taking people around the station and showing them all the different, um, you know, the different components of it. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I don't know. Sometimes, I mean, we obviously talk about how these these places could be quite barren and, you know, the, the, the climate's extreme. But I did watch a series of videos on a, a YouTuber who actually uh, worked at the Amazon Scott base, so the, the big base, uh, the US base at the, at the South Pole. And as much as it's like a huge, amazing base with huge infrastructure, inside it kind of just looks like a really boring half science, half office block facility. So it's sort of like imagine living for six months in the winter because they, they stay overnight there in this base, basically a place that could be anywhere in the Western world. Or yeah, like It's a bit depressing as well to think we, we, wherever we go, we just bring our usual so right, top, It's now another thing added to our bucket list. Go to visit the Ukrainian Antarctic Station. In the news this week, Commander of the Medical Forces of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, Tetyana Ostashenko, has been appointed as Ukraine's first ever female Brigadier General. Today, almost a quarter of Ukraine's army are women, many of these being in senior positions. Ukraine's Yelitsaveta Mareshko set a Paralympic world record during the women's 200 individual medley as six qualifiers. Her record time was 2 minutes, 56.9 seconds. During Ukrainian Independence Day celebrations in Kyiv, former President Petro Poroshenko was attacked with Zelenka, a brilliant green dye. The attacker was detained by police and charged with being a hooligan, a crime which carries a maximum penalty of five years in jail. Many Ukrainians have condemned such actions against the former president. During his speech in honour of 30 years of Ukrainian independence, President Zelensky announced that Ukraine would regain what belongs to it and would not allow anyone to occupy any page of its history, annex its writers, scientists or heroes. Zelensky also announced that Ukraine will commemorate the Christianization of Kievskorus and the foundation of Kiev as a new celebration called the Day of Ukrainian Statehood. As of day three, Ukraine has won a total of 21 medals at the Tokyo Paralympics. Ukraine is currently placed ninth on the medal tally board with three gold, 12 silver, and six bronze. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content.